Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Mike Winger, and today we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the entire book of 1 Peter. We'll talk about suffering. (laughs) I know that sounds really fun, but we really do need to think about this issue. And being a godly boss or a godly employee. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. And here we are working our way through 1 Peter. This, uh, let me give you a little update. Last week, we dealt with the issue of slavery in the Bible. And I went kind of surveyed through a lot of different passages in the law dealing with slavery. And then we talked about the New Testament as well. If you want to get a recap on that, it's on, it'll be on YouTube. It should be on uh, by tomorrow morning. I'm going to upload it tonight. And so if you want to get a recap on that, so th- this might feel like I'm skipping something, but only because I covered it last week. And I, th- I think that that is super valuable, super, super valuable. Because what you see is that God actually, if here's the summary, if they had applied the Old Testament rules about slavery to New Testament slavery, or, or especially to slavery um, in the South, in, in, uh, in the antebellum South in America or in England, it w- slavery would not have existed. It would not have been possible to have what happened if they had followed what God said. So it's actually beautiful to see how God was actually liberating slaves. Uh, really cool. So I, I encourage you to check it out. Now, the week before that, we dealt with government and when to submit and when to rebel, or at least I dealt with it to the best of my ability because I think there are some really complicated scenarios that aren't easily answered. Um, but a lot, most of our scenarios are answered for us here where we live. <laughs> That's pretty clear. Um, so... Now we're going to deal with a theme that's connected to both of those government, slavery, both of those issues, and some other issues. There are certain themes that come up in the Bible over and over and over again. And, and you might feel like a broken record as a, if you're a teacher because you constantly keep reteaching this topic because if you go verse by verse, there it is again, there it is again, there it is again. One of those issues is the issue of submission, is the issue of submission that we have. And we all submit to many different people. Every one of us has someone to submit to. And um, we, we want to engage in that submission in a godly way. But there's a good reason why the issue comes up so much in the Bible. And that's because we have so many problems in this area, <laughs> myself included, that I just naturally don't want to submit. Or, or I want to submit but do it in an ungodly fashion. Or do it in a, in, a, in a fashion just when you're watching but not when you're not. And that kind of thing. And so a willful, godly submission is what we're going for here. So in... First Peter chapter two eighteen it says servants targeting those those servants those uh, those anybody who's in that servanthood position to toward an employer or something along those lines including what I dealt with last week as far as slavery goes it says be submissive to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle but also to the harsh so submission is the thing ultimately in the scripture we're told to be submissive to whatever authority happens to be over you we're never asked to be submissive to illegitimate authorities. I remember once uh, working at a, this coffee shop near, actually right next door, Angel City, and I was over there working and this guy walked into the coffee shop and he says to me, yes, uh, hi, what's your name? Da, da, da. And he says, well, I'm a, I'm a traveling preacher. And I was like, oh, okay. I just thought it was strange to introduce yourself as a, tra- I mean, I don't walk up and say, hi, I'm a pastor, like everywhere I go. That's that'd just be weird to me. You know, like go to in and out and they're like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm a pastor. <laughs> like I just... <laughs> It just seemed odd. But he's like, I'm a traveling preacher. And he says, you know, the Bible says that those who, who, uh, who labor in the word should live by those labors. And so that they should receive payment for the labors they are doing in the word. And he says, so I want to know if you have anything for me. And, and so he stands and he quotes a scripture and then tells me that I'm supposed to pay him money. And I'm standing there and I'm like, <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I don't think this is going to happen. 
I'm like, well, you maybe you labor in the word, but you never labored in the word for me. <laughs> so don't expect me to. And you get people that that there's you know they have their hands out for illegitimate reasons. There's legitimate reasons and illegitimate ones. And he claimed to have this authority, but there was no legitimacy to it. And I have no reason to trust his his position, so I didn't respond to it. And I just. I kind of smiled and acted polite and then laughed at him as he left. But not to be rude, but because I thought it was funny. Um, and I, think, I still think it's funny, actually, because <laughs> it's so transparent. He just wanted money. He was just trying to be religious about it. But anyhow, the themes of submitting to legitimate authority, that's what's there. Legitimate authority, then submit. This is dealing, I think, about being like an employee for Jesus, Right, I mean, who here you work for a company, corporation, or an individual? You work for them. Okay, most of us do. Those of us who have jobs, <laughs> yes. and we should be submitting. So let's talk about that. Because uh, even though the servants, it applies to employees as well. So to be an employee for Jesus, what does that mean? Well, if I can share what I think it doesn't mean, and this is this is me in my earlier earlier walk with the Lord. I felt like when I worked at, um, I mean, I worked at Taco Bell, I. I worked at uh, released doves for funerals. I was a parts runner for an auto mechanic. I, I don't know. I mean, had like a dozen jobs, none of them related. None of them really required much skill either. But that's what the employment I had as I was serving the Lord and yet just getting whatever job I could. But I, I did feel as an earlier believer, or I should say earlier in ministry, that the time I served in the church, that was ministry. And the time I worked outside of the church, that was like something much less. And that it was like, yeah, this is not really ministry. Well, I'm just doing this so I can do ministry. But something happened. You see, after coming here on staff at the church in 2006, I was, I was on staff and I was paid for a season, but it wasn't really a living wage. It was just like gas money, basically. But I came to a time where I sort of was running out of funds. You know, I had that Italian disease. My friend Jimmy always tells me about my funds are low. And so I'm running out of funds. Nobody laughs when he says it either. It's okay. But... Um, <laughs> No, we, uh, we, we, we decided that it would be best for me to just try to find a job. Work full-time, still be the high school pastor, do everything I could in youth ministry, but just get a full-time job because the church didn't, just financially couldn't support me. And so I was like, fine, so I got a job. But something really different happened between my previous job and then that job. And it was that I went into this job believing it was ministry. And this totally and radically changed my experience on the job. I went there actually and I was selling metal cutting equipment and being, you know, helping people figure out what kind of blade they needed to cut such and such material on what kind of saw and things like that, you know. And there I am just taking calls and running orders and packaging and shipping and things like that. And I did it as unto the Lord and I found myself totally content. And I was content whether I whether I did that for the rest of my life or not because I did work as a ministry. And that is the lesson that I think God had for me to learn, was that we would actually do our daily labors as unto the Lord. This is like the message of Ecclesiastes. Whatever, you're, whatever comes to your hand, do it as unto the Lord. That's the conclusion of the whole matter, you know. Just live, live unto God. He takes a whole book and, and writes half the book of it is ignoring God and how despair-filled life is without God. And then the conclusion is just live, live unto the Lord, live for God. So my early job seemed worth less than the church ministry I did, but I didn't understand that all work can be ministry. And you can think about people who've worked as ministry who had jobs they didn't even like, like Joseph, taken and put into Potiphar's house as a slave, as a servant. But he did as unto the Lord, and he honored God with the way he served. And because of that, he was raised up, and God used it for his glory. But how many Christian employees 
do a really poor job on the job because they think it's not valuable. And because of that, that's why they're not getting raised up and God's not using them in a greater way in their workplace. But maybe that's, it's, we just have, do it unto the Lord, man. Just do it fully unto God, whatever it is you're doing. And that's the message from the scripture here, I think. Um, Lydia, there's a lady in the New Testament named Lydia. We're told she's a seller of purple. So she sold, she sold purple. She, she sold nice clothes and nice clothing. Purple was a, a royal, expensive color. They got it from mashing up worms, um, which doesn't sound fancy, but actually made it very expensive. And so they would, she would sell this purple, but then she used the funds to help support missionaries and support Paul and support these other people. So he writes to the church like, hey, whatever business she comes to, help her with it. You know, help her out. Because she just really had earned this place of um, using her, her life and her employment as ministry. So I think it's a great thing. Colossians 3.17 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's just that principle of whatever I'm doing, I'll do it unto the Lord. Uh, Whatever it is, uh, whether it's in church or out of church, in a sense, every Christian's in ministry. And I was in ministry before I was in ministry officially. Because I'm a believer and I shine the light of Christ wherever I go. And whatever job I do, I do it unto the Lord. That's ministry. So I could change tires as ministry. I could drive my my truck and do my long hauls as ministry. Or I could do whatever, you name it, as unto the Lord. I think we just have to take this scripture seriously. (laughs) I think that we're not called to change so much what we're doing as how we do it. It seems. God doesn't tell, uh, say you have a married couple and they're unequally yoked. Now we're not supposed to get into that marriage, but if you're in the marriage, you're just supposed to honor the Lord with it and try to make it work. And so he's not saying change what you're doing, but so much change how you're doing it. Now do it, now do it unto God. So the same thing with our employment situations. So that means that we have no excuses for like shirking out of our duties because it's as unto the Lord, as, as though God is my actual employer, because let's face it, he is. I like how he tells Pharaoh who has... Israel as his own servants. Israel, all the people were Pharaoh's servants. And he says, let my people go. God claims ownership over these Israelis. He's like, yeah, you think they're yours. They're mine. And if I have in my heart that I am God's servant, that I'm actually serving him, I'm doing this job unto him, then then I'm in the right place in the right heart. So we just have to take that verse to heart and work unto the Lord. Um, Let's look at another scripture that talks about this employee-employer relationship, servant-master relationship. Ephesians chapter 6. And it's verse 5. I'll let you flip there. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in it. Ephesians 6, 5. And it deals with not just sort of what we dealt with in verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, but be submissive with fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. But it also deals with a little bit more of the nuts and bolts of how God wants us to be in our employment. So, I, I mean, as a believer, I've got to take this to heart because how much time do I spend at work? It's a huge ministry. I mean, I spend a large amount of time there doing these things. This is a massive ministry, a great undertaking for the Lord. And here's how to do it. Ephesians 6, 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Now, you're not treating them like they are Christ, as though they have all authority over your life. Rather, you're doing whatever you do as though, as though and you should be doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ, not just because they told you so but I'll do that they told me so for the Lord. He was my motive. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men, 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So I'm told a few things. I'm told that it is, they're my masters according to the flesh. So they're not the master of my soul and my spirit. That it's just, it's just a human, earthly sort of authority that they, that they may have over me. And an employment relationship, it's only in a very limited sphere that they do. You know, I clock in and then they're pretty much telling me what to do and I do it and get it done. That's, that's pretty much how it works. Um, but then I clock out and if my boss came over to my house at night and they're like, hey, Mike. Yeah, I, I don't turn off the TV. I want you to do radio and no TV tonight. I'd be like, <laughs> "You're funny. <laughs> See you tomorrow." You know, like this is you have no authority here, so I don't have anything to submit to. It's an illegitimate thing, but with illegitimate authority, according just according to the flesh, I do this with fear and trembling, not as man pleasers, not with eye service. That that eye service thing is the idea of just when they're looking. I'm only really working for their eyes. I, uh, I've worked at Taco Bell. I've also worked at In-N-Out. Now, for you, those, those of you that are familiar with those two different organizations, right? Taco Bell is like, let's face it, like they're down here on the, on the quality of employees and training they give them and pay that they give them. And In-N-Out's like way up here as far as fast food goes. It's like cream of the crop as far as that's the place you'd like to work. At uh, Taco Bell, it was really interesting. They had a constant, you have to always be working, always moving. But yet people didn't care. <laughs> I mean, my manager, my, my, my manager is making like 30 cents an hour more than I was. So she didn't care, but you got to look like you're working. So they would stand there with a, uh, with a hand towel on the counter, just like basically hyper polishing one spot for like 10 minutes while nothing was, no, there was nothing to do. And they're just standing there talking while they're just hyper polishing this one spot. I mean, it's been the shiniest spot on the counter, you know, and they're just doing this because they're just supposed to look like they're doing something, but they don't care. This is just eye service. I just want to make them think that I'm working or in that way if they come by, I'm like, okay, I can do this. You know, that's the eye service thing. When I was a kid and I heard my mom's car pull up and all of a sudden I was doing my chores, you know, and I'm, I'm doing them even though they're not done, but eye service, if she sees that I'm doing them now, I won't get in as much trouble. It's, it, it was for eye service. There was nothing about obedience there. It was just about not getting in trouble. <laughs> And that's the difference. Now, in and out had a phrase where they actually tried to teach the employees this. And it was time to lean, time to clean. And they, and they actually really did try to get you to do that. So that, And the best example of it was my manager. This guy was always working. He was constantly busy. He didn't waste any time. And if, and if there, we had employees sitting around, that just meant we didn't need them there. <laughs> you're standing around. Hey, go home. <laughs> that was Boom, you're off. That was the end of your day. You know? And so um, it was very much not the kind of eye service sort of thing. And that's... That's ultimately what we want. Now, this kind of depends on the type of job you have. If you have an hourly job, you're paid for your time. If you have a salary job, you're paid for the task. And so it depends on your job. Um, if you're an hourly job, you're going to put more at constant activity. If you have a salary job, you may not even clock in or clock out. It's, you, so, you know, you know, just honor the Lord with the work that you do and stuff. Um, but we're told not to be men pleasers, but bond servants of Christ. So I, I don't want to be a kiss up. That's not the goal here. That's again, that's, I'm trying to please my boss. Rather, hey, boss, oh man, you're doing such a great job. You must really love me as your boss. And you're like, well, actually, I love Jesus. And that's the only reason why I do it. That's just the truth of the matter. See, a man pleaser, a kiss up, they flatter for personal benefit of their own. They're really not great employees as much as they're just manipulators. And they're trying to get their way and get their promotion and get their thing. But the Christ pleaser is just going to do the good job, whether it gets rewarded or noticed or whatever, because that's what God's called me to do. 
So an honorable person who just seeks to glorify Christ, not with eye service, but as unto the Lord, that's the task. That's the task. So we're to submit with all fear. Um, if you would turn back to First uh, Peter here, chapter 2, eight, verse 18, we're to submit, it says, with all fear, which simply means to treat the boss like they are the boss, like, they're, like their words matter, you know, whoever that person is that's in charge. I'm fully comfortable with uh, having to submit and yield to someone who I find is an ungodly individual, who I find I don't like the decisions they make. I think that they're running their company downhill instead of uphill or something like that because I go, hey, they're accountable for that. I'm just accountable for doing what I signed up for. I mean, when I, when I got the job, it wasn't like, do what you think is best. <laughs> Nobody hires employees and tells them that, but rather I was just told to do these tasks and, uh, and God will, I believe God will honor you. Now it says to submit to not only the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. So doing my part when they are not doing their part, that's, that's the thing. To submit when they're being, in a word, total jerks. To still walk in submission. This is hard. I think because flesh hooks flesh. That is when their flesh, their carnal sin nature, comes out and grabs at me. It grabs my flesh, makes contact. And then we're doing this thing, back and forth. Flesh hooks flesh. That, that, is, a, that is just a principle of life that we learn. And you see it when, you know, they say two wrongs don't make a right. That's true. <laughs> but yet, one wrong just seems so lonely, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> but they, you know, they, they wounded me. They hurt me. Like, I got to do something to get back at them somehow. And that is exactly what God's calling us to not do. So this is a major test in our lives of Christ-likeness is to not treat others based on how they treat us. Right? This is the, one of the major tests. I mean, that's what love is. I'm not going to treat you the way you treat me. I'm going to treat you the way that, well, the way that I would want to be treated. Treat you the way that Christ has treated me. This is tough. This is where the rubber meets the road. What if the authority that I'm under causes me to suffer wrongly? That is the thrust of what he's talking about. And he's going to continue on. Verse 19, he gets even heavier into it. For this is commendable. This is commendable. If because of conscience toward God... One endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, he, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, the real true boss of all of us. So here, let's talk about these points in verses 19 through 25. Um, I noticed that he says, it, it, it's a when, when you suffer. It's sort, of, it's, it's sort of expected that you will suffer wrongfully at the hands of those that have authority in your life. It's anticipated to happen. This, now, hopefully it's not happening all the time. Hopefully it's not a constant and unhorrid thing like that. But 
this isn't is sort of an anticipated thing as a believer. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, and that persecution. I don't want to uh, say that persecution is only when they're killing you for your faith in Christ. Persecution is when you get overlooked for a promotion, or or someone just talks bad about you or doesn't invite you out because that that is a type of persecution. Of course, it doesn't compare to being martyred for the Lord, but all of this is included. Jesus included in persecution the concept of people um, slandering you. He called that persecution as well in his description of blessed are you when you're persecuted, when men what say evil things against you for my name for my name's sake. Um, so that's all part of it. But the point here is that you are only commendable, only commended if you're suffering wrongfully. That's important. What kind of suffering is commendable? Suffering wrongly at the hands of other humans. And that's the kind of suffering that is the most irritating and the most tempting for us to flesh out on, I think. Um, this is what leads to things where people are like, I love animals, but humans? I can't say that. <laughs> because there's like this bitterness of the wrong that has been done to me. And so I've just kind of, you know, become uh, speciesist against humans in general, I think. So it should be wrongly. Not after mountains of justifications. Not, I'm suffering wrongly because when you factor in this and 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 this, then I should really not have to experience the thing I'm experiencing. It is too easy to justify things. It is too simple. We have to sort of police ourselves not to make too many excuses for ourselves because we have great imaginations when it comes to getting ourselves off the hook as to why. Well, like, well, you know, I didn't. I remember seeing a kid who was very rebellious and uh, we went on on a church trip together and he didn't want to get off the bus because he was tired of walking or something like that. So we're like, hey, you you got to come off the bus. Like, there's we're literally leaving, and we're not going to leave you alone here in this not perfectly safe area, <laughs> sitting on a bus in the heat with no parents. So you've got to come, and he doesn't want to come. He doesn't want to come, and the parents were just frustrated because he was being very rebellious. And so I get on the bus. I was like, hey, you know, thinking maybe he'll listen to me. I said, hey, come on, you need to you need to come. I reach my hand out, not to grab him and manhandle him, but just like, hey, come on. And he just starts hitting, kicking at me, right. And I'm like, ooh, okay, well, I'm not getting involved with this, right? This is not my child. So I back off. I get the parents. And then they get him off the bus. And he's like, oh, it's not my fault. I'm, I'm tired. And I thought, how interesting how quickly he was able, because he felt the tension of how all the, all the attention's on him, right? That he's doing something wrong. But he explains how it's really not his fault. And he literally walked off the bus thinking that he was the victim here. Poor kid. We can go through our whole lives victimizing ourselves no matter what we have perpetrated. How many people who sit in prison right now, though they did the crime and now they're doing the time, they still think it's wrong? They still think that because of these extraneous circumstances, you know, this is why. This is why I'm not responsible for what I did. But, you know, somebody else is, some fictitious group or individuals, that kind of thing. So we have to avoid justification because sometimes what we feel we can do is we kind of do what Hollywood does. Have you noticed Hollywood doing this? They used to have heroes. Now they have what they call like the anti-hero where the hero of the film is actually not really a good guy or a good girl so much as they're just the one you're supposed to root for. Why? Because the other person is actually worse. So it's now, you know, you've got like uh, a character who's who's selfish and they're hateful, they're a horrible parent, they're all this stuff, you know, but they're a good fighter in a pinch, you know, or something like that. And then they 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 go off into fight the bad guy, but what they've done is they've introduced the bad guy 
as the guy who like kills one of his own in the beginning of scene of the movie because the guy didn't accomplish something you wanted. They'll do something to make the bad guy look really terrible. So that now you're like, well, by default, I'll root for the other guy. So now I'm rooting, and then you're like, why am I cheering him on? It's kind of like better if they all sort of fall off the map, you know? <laughs> I think that we do this sometimes to ourselves. What, what I do is I simply say, okay, maybe I did wrong, but if I can make myself feel they did more wrong than me, then I'm actually the victim. So we have a, there's a bad guy and there's a good guy, is our assumption. Unfortunately, this is not the case. I really feel like the last part of the book of Judges was partially written just to prove this point. I've taught verse by verse through Judges, and as you approach the end of the book, the last several chapters, it's like, who is the good guy in this wacky scenario? And the answer is, over and over again, the answer is nobody. They're all punks. They're just messed up over and over again, messed up Israel with another group of messed up Israel just messing each other up, and there isn't a good guy in this scenario. There are times in my life where I've I've been wronged, and I wronged them, and we were both bad guys. So, so all I'm saying here is we can't say we're suffering wrongly if we have been doing wrong that contributed to our suffering. Then I'm no longer suffering wrongly. I'm suffering consequences, chastening, and I'm being taught by the Lord through this. So maybe the consequences seem too extreme. Maybe not. But that would not be suffering wrongly. The question is this. Rather than, oh, me and my wife got in an argument, but you know what? She said this, and I'm going to hook everything on that one thing that she said wrong, and oh, she's the bad guy, so I'm the good guy, and I'm innocent, and she's wrong. Rather, I need to stop, forget everything they did for one moment, evaluate all of my actions, and ask, did I do wrong? And if the answer is no, I did, no, I did nothing wrong, then this applies. So let's assume that it applies. Let's assume that it does apply, and that I'm suffering wrongly, so... Conscience toward God is absolutely the key here. Um, it's commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. So first, step one, I've got to be suffering wrongly. Step two, it's got to be how I suffer wrongly that actually makes it commendable. Um, the first thing I need to know is that God is judge. And that's what conscience towards God, awareness of God. If I'm suffering wrongly and I'm like, Lord, you know what? You're in charge. You're the judge. I don't need to take retaliation because you will take care of whatever and do, do this perfectly in whatever way you want. You know, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so that means my wrath is not going to make things right here. So I need, to, I need to not do that. And the second thing is to know this, and this is what he gets into, is um, that Christ suffered wrongly according, check this out, according to God's will and his plan. It was God's agenda that Jesus would suffer wrongfully at the hands of sinners. The reason why he's bringing this up as an example for us is so that we as believers would realize that it may be in God's plan for your life to have you go through the suffering wrongly at the hands of someone else. Now, that could discourage you, but it should actually very much encourage you because you can realize that God is using this for his glory and he's using this for something wonderful in your life. He's going to use this. So my call, my task is to, and I'll quote the verse here. It says, endure, endure grief, suffering wrongfully, to endure it. Now, enduring the grief means what? Maintaining composure, integrity, and character. So I endure it. I, I, I continue walking the path of honoring and glorifying God while suffering under this grief. It doesn't mean I approve of the, the grief. It doesn't make right what's happening to me. This is still wrong but I'm called to endure it. 
So if I'm going to bear this thing, then I want to continue honoring the Lord in it. So it is, a, it is commendable only if I take it patiently. So it's commendable what? First, if my heart is towards the Lord in this thing. Second, if I'm suffering wrongfully and I don't deserve it, like, so I can't put on my martyr hat because I, I called in sick and lied about how I wasn't feeling good and my boss found out and fired me. I can't be like, persecution. I mean, come on. Um, but so if it's wrongfully, and then, then finally, it is um, commendable if I take it with patience. So what is patience? Well, it's described by the actions of Jesus. Look at verse 23. Jesus, he was reviled, but he did not revile in return. He did not revile in return. So reviling somebody's like, I just think of like chewing your face up at them and calling them names, that kind of thing, spitting at them. That's reviling them. So Christ was reviled, but he did not revile in return. They mocked him, they called him names, but he offered no names back to them. He did not do that. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But it is my temptation, especially when someone in authority over my life does something I don't like, to use my mouth to rip them apart, to revile them. That is the tendency. So it's something I need to be careful of to be mindful of, that I'm not patient in this suffering if I'm using my mouth to tear them down. That would be, that would be not, not what God's calling us to do here. So the second thing is to not threaten, also in verse 23. He says not threatening. So Jesus, Now, Jesus could have threatened them. Think about it. He's like, oh, that hurts. You're going to go to hell. Like he could have he literally just poof, sent them there. Had he so chosen, but he loved them so much, he wanted them to be saved. He prays for their forgiveness. He, he offers himself for their sins. And so not threatening, not threatening. And the, and the idea of threatening is that I'm holding this, this grudge against them and I want them to pay for the thing that they're doing. And so I offer them threats. Well, this is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. That's going to happen to you. Um, again, a threat and reviling are both often done by those who don't have the power to actually do anything. So they threaten and they revile. And so again, it's that person who might be in submission, you know, the employee in that relationship. Instead, it says committing yourself to him who judges righteously. That is a beautiful, beautiful idea that I just go, Lord, it's in your hands. It's in your hands. What are you going to do about this? Like, there's nothing I can do. Lord, it's in your hands. Didn't that just make you mad? You know what? I'm I'm just giving that to the Lord. I'm just going to give that to God and trust him in it and not worry about it. That is what we're called to do. Now, David, I think King David, is an awesome example of this. So let me just recap for you some of his story, right? David, he gets called from tending the sheep. He's a shepherd. And this is ancient Israel. And Saul, who's the first king of the land of Israel, he was a lousy king. He was a very lousy king. And David gets called from tending the sheep to come to Saul to play the harp for him because while he tends the sheep, he's been practicing his harp and he's become a very good musician and he's written a ton of songs. And uh, we read some of those in in, in the book of Psalms, right? So he goes and he plays the harp for uh, King Saul. Whenever King Saul gets very down because he's feeling depression over spiritual warfare because he's been yielding uh, to, uh, to the flesh. And so David plays for him and Saul experiences peace. But over time, because David gained uh, renown for having killed Goliath, Saul starts to get jealous about David. And David loves Saul. He loves the guy. But Saul tries to kill David. Now, I've never had an employer who actually tried to kill me. I almost died of electrocution one time. (laughs) But it wasn't on purpose. 
um, and they got rid of the device that caused it right after that. So that was nice. But <laughs> so that was nice. Obviously, that wasn't Taco Bell because <laughs> they would have just kept it. But um, <laughs> unless it was a news story. Yeah. But no, so Saul, he tries to kill David. Now, David runs. Now, this is a great example for us because guess what? There's one thing to be suffering under the hands of your employer, and it's something else when someone's like trying to murder you. Run, run, like please, please be wise, and and you know you don't have to stay underneath that. You know, use wisdom and get out of there. So David runs. Now Saul chases him, and David hides. Now he's hiding in the mountains and in the caves around Israel. This particular one we think was at En Gedi. You can actually go visit the place. There's a particular cave that might be the one where there's a waterfall and all the, the description matches. And what happens is Saul has to go to the bathroom. And the king doesn't want to go in front of a tent or something like that. And they want to keep that sort of bathroomy stuff far away from everybody else, unlike us who do it in our own homes, next to where we wash our hands. I don't understand that. But anyways, <laughs> then he goes into the cave to go to the bathroom and guess who's in the cave. David and his men are hiding in that cave. And David's men, in fact, one of David's men in particular, encourages David, David, here's your chance. God has delivered Saul into your hands. So he's very spiritual about it. Like, well, this is the Lord, obviously. Go and kill him, David. Now, David would only be doing to Saul what Saul tried to do to him. It would just be flesh hooking flesh. You know what I mean? Tit for tat. It would just be that. But no, David's like, no, I will not raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. So that, that story's in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 15. You can read about it. And he has this beautiful attitude. Um, in fact, I th- think we have time. Let's, let's look at it right now. 1 Samuel chapter 24. David has been my constant example um, when I suffer in some sense, maybe even just in my own imagination, suffering at the hands of those that have some authority in my life, David has always been my example that I go to, and I I encourage you to do the same thing. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Now it happened, when Saul had returned from following the Philistines, that it was told to him, saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So he came to the shepherds by the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave and Saul went in to attend to his needs. That would be an Old Testament way of saying go to the bathroom. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand and that you may do to him as seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David refuses to attack him. Notice that they even quote like, this is so God, man. God wants you to like stab him in the back now, David. Here's your chance. And it's crazy that he had people that thought for spiritual reasons that he should attack this man. So we have to guard ourselves against Christianizing bad behavior. But um, now verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. Now I've read that the corners of the robe have something to do with the authority. That there's a, there's a symbolism there. They would put things on the corners of the robe to represent the authority and the positions and things like that. So he may feel like, oh, like I didn't just take evidence to show I was near him, to show him I meant him no harm. I also took something of his authority by doing that. So he feels bad. So David's heart's very sensitive here. He feels bad for even in some fashion diminishing the authority of this guy who's trying to kill him. Very sensitive heart. Now, how can he do that? Because he's doing it unto the Lord. It's not unto Saul. It's unto the Lord. That's the only explanation I can find. 
So verse six, it says, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So it's conscience towards God. So David restrained his servants with these words because they wanted to kill him too and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. And David also rose, arose afterward, went out of the cave and called out to Saul saying, my Lord, the king. So he hears this voice from behind him. You can imagine how scary this would be for Saul. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And someone, he he won't name who, he's like, and someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, he calls him his father. Look at that. Yes, the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. See, there's nothing wrong with telling someone who's wrongfully causing you to suffer that they are wrongfully causing you to suffer. Or even seeking ways to demonstrate that you don't deserve this. That's okay. David's doing that here. And it seems to be a good example. Um, and he's like, look, this is how close I was. I got the corner of your rope. If I wanted to hurt you, I would have. Look, I'm not trying to hurt you. And then verse 12, look at his, who commends it to God, who judges. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. He's not even being entirely nice to Saul. Because he just was like, you know what, Saul? You have an authority that's, that's over you as well. And I'm just going to entrust this to, to that authority, God. He can take care of this, but it's not my position, so I'm simply not going to do anything. So, um, it, and it goes on, uh, where David continues to make his case towards Saul. So then, again, it happens David entreats Saul, let's be friends. You know, why can't we be friends? He's trying to be a buddy of his, but no, Saul tries to kill him again, chases him down again. Saul repents for a while. Then, you know, he's an unstable man and he goes after David once again, targeting him intentionally, trying to kill him. But once again, Saul is delivered into his hands. So let's pick up there in 1 Samuel 26, verses 9 through 12. And it says here, um, oh, let me set this up just a little bit for you. Um, in 1 Samuel 26, Saul, this time he's encamped and David sneaks into the camp. He's trying to give another demonstration that he's not trying to hurt him. And so he goes down to the people by night. I'll actually read from verse 7. So David and Abishai came to the people by night and there Saul lay sleeping within the camp and his spear stuck in the ground by his head and Abner and the people lay all around him. So even his bodyguards were asleep. And then Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please... Let me strike him at once with a spear right to the earth and I will not have to strike him a second time. Like you get the vibe that he is like, he's like excited about the idea of killing, killing this guy. But look at David's heart. David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. Again, it's conscience towards God. God, if all authority is from you and I strike out against the authority, then I am offending you and I can't be guiltless in that. So even though maybe he deserves it and all that, but I can't do that because I don't want to be in the wrong. So David said furthermore in verse 10, 
As the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. I don't know how this is going to happen, but God will take care of it. God has plenty of ideas and plenty of tricks in his, in his bag, so to speak. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water by Saul's head and they got away. And no man saw or knew it or awoke, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. And notice God's protecting David, but David is also walking in God's will. And I think that God's protection is on us as we walk in his will. Um, it's not safe to say as a Christian, like, well, God will protect me and then do something crazy, you know, unless he's calling you to do something that seems crazy to others, in which case you do it. But but here we've got this um, this loyalty that David has towards Saul because of conscience to God. He is our example of suffering wrongfully, along with Jesus as our prime example. He's another one of our examples here. I always think of David. Always, always, always. Just constantly, you know. When I find, and boy, you get passionate when you're in ministry, and you see somebody in ministry make a decision that you think is not a good decision. And you're like, oh, I do not think this is good. Yet it's not my place to try to change that. And so, because of conscience towards God, you just go, Lord, you're in control. And watch how God can even use that for something wonderful. And then later you can claim that it was a bad decision and you knew it, but God used it. Or maybe it was a good decision and you just didn't know. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? But, uh, but ultimately, we just because of conscience towards God. Now, check this out. David, right after this, I won't read the passage, but I'll just tell you because it's really cool. He's actually angry that Saul's bodyguards weren't protecting him better. And he's like, you deserve to get punished because you weren't protecting the king. And I got all the way up there. And if someone wanted to hurt him, they could have hurt him. He's like, he's so on the side of Saul because he's so on the side of God. Now, Saul never really gets this. He, he again, he's like, oh, David, my son, I love you. And then David's like, okay. But he knows Saul's crazy. And even though he forgives him, he doesn't pretend that everything's okay and doesn't go with him. So there's wisdom there. I think that's, that David's our example. So we have lots of other examples as well. Stephen, when he was martyred in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr of the church, you know how he, he looked up to heaven, he looked up his eyes and he said, Lord, call down rocks to smash those who attack me now. No. He actually echoed the words of Jesus. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They don't know what they're doing. And they didn't. They didn't really know. Now, were they, did they know what they were doing was wrong? Yes. But did they really know the full implications of what they were doing? No. And so he prays for them. Onesimus is another one that he's told to go back to, uh, to, to the master. We read about this last week. And he's told to go back, even with a little bit of uncertainty as to what might for sure happen, because just to honor the Lord and serve God in this thing. So I think this is huge. Now, how much more when my employer tells me to do something I don't feel like doing or feels like I feel like he's playing favorites or this kind of thing? You know, I mean, just, just to honor the Lord. If I suffer wrongfully in any capacity in my life, as a husband, as a wife, as a child, as a parent, you suffer wrongfully and you are truly in the right, that is commendable. If you take it patiently. That's the message here. So then we get a message of Christ's sufferings compared to ours. And um, a, a big portion of the passage we read today in 1 Peter deals with that. But this should totally remove any sense of entitlement I have. Because we do live in the land of entitlement. <laughs> the United States of America. And here we are feeling oftentimes very entitled, unfortunately. Um, because it causes us to be depressed and ungrateful, I think. You know, but when, you know, because you can either be grateful or or upset you don't have more. It seems kind of be, we tend to fly onto one end of the spectrum or the other. 
but I should get rid of my entitlement when I realize that Jesus suffered for my sins. So that even if I'm saying, you know what, this is lame. I'm suffering because they're sinful. I'm like suffering for their sins. And I would say, well, in a sense, you are. You are suffering for their sins. But Jesus suffered for your sins. And he did it to a degree you've never done. He actually took your sins on himself. You're just suffering because of their sin. And for that, we're following Jesus. So we should realize that, like verse 21 says, right? For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. You were called, wow, I may be called into suffering. It is not a beautiful, perfect life that the Christian lives. In fact, this is as close to hell as we ever get. And so there is suffering and there is pain and there is hardship involved. But we have to mentally prepare ourselves now for when that suffering comes that we might just honor the Lord Jesus Christ and do so in a way that is commendable before God. So if I go to reviling and I go to like this, this, this incessant anger and complaining and bitterness and stuff, and it's like I'm just not learning the lesson and I'm not glorifying the Lord in that. Um, so Jesus bore my sins. I mean, he, he actually took them on in a, in a greater way than I could, but I am to follow in his steps and be will, willing to suffer at the hands of those who are causing me to suffer wrongfully, even those in authority in my life. Now, it just doesn't mean, however... That you cannot say, quit your job. Okay, you can quit your job, but while you're there, you walk in that submission. But there's a glorious ability to quit. <laughs> and that's, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. We're just talking about while you are there and while, while they have that authority. This doesn't mean that you can't appeal to law if you are suffering wrongfully. That you can't have a lawsuit or a law case. But there's a patience and endurance and stuff that happens all throughout that whole process. Uh, Paul appealed to the law. He appealed to Caesar when, when they were carrying him away and it was, it was going to end up costing him his life. And so he appealed. I appeal to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. I have that right. But we don't find him reviling and you know losing his patience and his conscience towards God in those activities. So, but what it does do, I think it gets rid of our victim mentality. Because, you know, there's actually a syndrome out there they call the martyr syndrome. And the martyr syndrome is really funny because it's not the proper use of the word martyr. But the martyr syndrome is this idea. It's kind of like Cain. He's my example of a, of, a, of a me, 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 victim mentality kind of person throughout the scriptures is Cain. Um, everything was about wham, wham, wham. Even when he was judged, it was like, well, it's just so hard for me. I mean, it was like, you just like, you can't, you can't win with Cain. But um, this martyr syndrome, this concept is the idea that no matter what happens to me, I'm just, oh, poor me, I'm a martyr. Da, da, da. But yet when you read about the martyrs, that was not their attitude. That was not their attitude at all. They were like, Lord, I count it an honor that you count me worthy to suffer for your name's sake. Not like, oh, it's hard, but I'm trying to do it for Jesus. It's so hard. It's trying, but it's so hard. It's trying, you know. But rather, that. so what we want, honestly, is we want a genuine martyr mentality. That says, Lord, whatever you cause me, to, suffering you cause me to go through, well, there's greater joy and greater treasure, and it is commendable, and that's really good news. Because if something's commendable, that means that, A, it's temporary, and B, there's a commendation coming for it, right? This is going to end, and then there's the, the commendation. Great is your reward in heaven, Jesus said. Let me read it to you. Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Well, how can I be exceedingly glad in the middle of that? For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So I should not only not be surprised when it happens, but I actually should have a joy. Like, Lord, for this pain, there is a reward. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know. I wouldn't even ask for a reward. But how exciting. How cool is that? There's a reward for this thing, and I can rejoice in that. God wants you simply to act like that reward is a real thing. That's it. Just to act like it's real. Because it is. So I, I think we ought to have a real martyr mentality. That's the point of First Peter. <laughs> a genuine martyr mentality that's like, no, I don't need everything to always be perfect and justice, perfect justice in my life, Lord. I can tolerate and, and withstand some, some abuse at the hands of people who are, who are persecuting me for righteousness sake. Here's my prayer, Lord, let it not be that I suffer because I deserved it. That's my prayer. Let it not be that I, that I suffer because I deserved it, but then because of conscience towards God, may I go, okay, Lord, let your will be done. Because if you stand on Christian values, you will suffer persecution. It's just going to happen in some capacity or another. It's inevitable. Um, uh, I'd like to close, actually, if you would turn with me to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. Because this psalm, I think, gives us that heart that we want to have to apply this scripture. Psalm 37. And, it's, and it uses the phrase, wait on the Lord. And I want to... Um, Take a minute to sort of rescue the phrase wait on the Lord from the misuse that it often has. Um, waiting on the Lord, although you can do this, but this is not what the term means in the Old Testament. Waiting on the Lord's not um, a quiet, like 30-minute time of prayer. Now, you can do that unto the Lord. Have a quiet 30-minute time of prayer and you're just praying for wisdom. or Do that. Go for it. But when you read the phrase wait on the Lord, that's not what it means in the scripture. That's kind of a sort of a hijacking of the term. You could call that something else, perhaps. But wait on the Lord is, I think, described by what's tagged on to it in Psalm 37, verse 34. It says this, wait on the Lord and keep his way. See, waiting on God is like Abraham going into a land in which God would show him, waiting on God to finally fulfill the promise. And while he's waiting, what is he doing? He's walking in obedience to what God has revealed to him. So waiting on God is simply following God until he does the thing that he said he's going to do. However long that takes. Waiting is an action. It is an activity. I'm waiting on the Lord. It's like you're told, hey, push this button down. All right? Now wait here till I get back. Okay. So you let go of the button and sit down and take a nap. Well, that wasn't waiting. But I was waiting. No, you weren't waiting. Waiting would be, you keep that button down until I get back. This is what you got to do until I return. And in the same sense, I am to wait on the Lord with that active waiting of honoring the Lord in the position I find myself in in life, whatever that is. I like the bloom where you're planted philosophy of just honor God wherever you're at and let him take you to the next thing, whatever that would be. And um, Psalm 37, verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. He pa- yet he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble. 
and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. And when it comes to this, to conclude, as I'm hammering the same thing over and over again, but that's because God hammers this thing for us over and over again in the scriptures. It is commendable if we suffer wrongfully and we do it with conscience toward God and we take it patiently, not reviling, not threatening, but just saying, God, I commend myself to you. Then that's commendable to him. So is it enough for us to just say, God, you've got the final word. All this stuff is temporary. And when it, when it all gets cleared away, I just want to find that I'm, I've honored you in it. I've honored you in it and I'm pleasing you in it. And so, um, so I, I hope that that is an encouragement. I don't know what, what kind of suffering you might be at, but any sort of suffering at the hand of anyone wrongfully, I mean, this applies to it. That's the point. And we're actually not done. In First Peter, he'll hit this again later on in chapter 4. He hits it again in, in, a, in a different angle. We'll talk about that as we get there. But, um, but for us to steal our hearts and say, am I willing to endure? Because what I can't do is promise, you know, sunny days. Not yet. Not yet. We have unlimited sunny days coming, but not at the moment. And while we're waiting on the Lord, we'll just keep his way. So let's pray. Father God, we ask for your help, Lord, because we want to honor you in this. And this is a, a real challenge, Lord, because what happens is later on we get, we get um, cut off in traffic and all of a sudden it's all gone. <laughs> but Lord, you want us to have this as a constant mentality of a sense of patience and Christ-likeness to respond to those who might hate us without reason harm us without cause, or uh, just somehow abuse us wrongfully. And you want us to respond to that with a patient endurance, Lord, not with a foolishness. I mean, it's okay for us to evacuate from that situation if we need to, but to not do so in the flesh. And so, Lord, we pray that. Help us to be able to look at every scenario we're in and ask, how do I honor you, God? How do I be one who is walking truthfully with you, Lord, in this? And may you give us the wisdom and the clarity so we don't use the sins of others to excuse our own, but rather rather we identify with Christ at that moment and say, okay, this is the moment. This is what you've called me to. Let me honor you, Lord. Let me walk patiently and wait on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for thinking biblically with me today. I'm Mike Winger, and next time we are tackling two very dangerous words in the Bible. That is, these two words. Are you ready for them? Wives submit. And my goal in dealing with these two words is to understand them clearly. I'm not trying to attack or defend or anything like that. I I believe and trust in God's holy word, but I want us to get clarity on it so that we can come rightly underneath what he's teaching us about marriage. So uh, until next time, don't forget to check the context.